Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Lord, we just say this morning, this is your time. Holy Spirit, this is your holy, infallible, inspired word. We pray that you would speak through it this morning. God, we haven't come to hear a man or the thoughts of a man. We ask that you would speak. Cut us, inspire us, encourage us. You say whatever it is you need to say. Holy Spirit, this time is yours. Lord, let me decrease and you increase. Guard my lips, Lord, because everybody knows I say something stupid about every other week. So guard my lips, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Somebody say amen to that one. We needed that prayer this morning. John Fox fled to Switzerland as Mary Tudor rose to power in England in 1553. Mary had hundreds of Protestants put to death. Remember, history calls her Bloody Mary because of her um, tendency towards violence. And Fox was an Oxford alumni, and most of the Protestants were alumni of Cambridge. But John Fox was an alumni of Oxford, and he lost his status in the Oxford elite when it came to be known that he was a Protestant. And so as Mary began tearing through England, Fox brought his family to Basel, Switzerland, where he worked at a printing house and lived in a community filled with Protestants. It was safer for him and his family there. He worked at a printing house, and he um, he proofread books that were going to be published. And this printing house was um, run primarily by Protestants, and they were printing Protestant letters that were going back and forth to one another. They were printing Protestant books. Remember, the, the printing press wasn't too old at this point. We're talking the 1550s. Um, and they were also printing martyologies, um, histories of martyrs, and that had become a bit of a trend. And so Fox, um, again, living in Switzerland, working at a printing house with Protestants, and they are tracking the deaths of all of these Protestants, these people who are being murdered for their faith in Jesus. They are being murdered, executed for things like believing that the Bible um, should be translated into modern languages, believing that every person should be able to read the Bible for themselves. That was the teaching of John Wycliffe, um, who John Huss would grab hold of, and Huss would be martyred um, for that conviction and the conviction that the church should not be selling penance, so the church shouldn't be able to sell um, indulgences. Um, selling indulgences, that was the right word. Um, the problem that Fox saw and what, what grieved Fox and his companions and his co-workers is that there were hundreds of people being murdered for their Bible convictions, their convictions in scriptures, but they were not going down as martyrs, they were being murdered as heretics. So can you imagine the great heroes of the faith who are dying, literally giving their life, being thrown in fire, losing their heads so that every believer could have the scripture and watching your friends and heroes be murdered. But they're not going down as these martyrs. They're going down as heretics. And history is not remembering them at this point as these great heroes of the faith. The, the Roman church is declaring them as people who are trying to turn uh, folks away. And so Fox began to pay close attention to the deaths of these Protestant brothers and sisters. There were some sisters who were martyred during this time with some crazy stories. I don't want to get into it all. Um, but 
Fox paid attention. He researched their lives. He interviewed eyewitnesses. And he eventually wrote a massive work, which when it was originally printed, there were multiple revisions. The original printing of Fox's work, which he called the Acts and Monuments, was thicker than the Scriptures. So thicker than the Scriptures, he documented martyrdoms from the early church all the way to his day. And he tried to show that the martyrs of his day were actually the ones who were in line with the early martyrs and that the Roman church was executing men and women who were fighting for the historical Christian faith. And so, again, originally the work was much larger than even the scriptures. And a bloody Mary Tudor passed and Elizabeth, her Protestant half-sister, rose to the throne, which allowed Fox to return and print his work, acts, and monuments. And it was massively influential and under Elizabeth's leadership, every church was commanded to have a copy of the scriptures and to have a copy of Acts and Monuments. And Fox's work successfully, successfully shored up the Protestant Reformation in England. England would not go back, but he shored up the Protestant Reformation. He changed the popular opinion of the population of England by telling faithful stories of faithful witnesses. It was the stories of these men and women's lives who changed the opinion of England. He told of John Huss, again, who was a follower of Wycliffe and the man who inspired Luther. Luther found Huss's writings in a library and was fascinated with John Huss and said, how in the world was this man martyred? How was was he executed as a heretic? And Huss was burned at the stake as he sung hymns. And Huss was asked to recant his views. And he proclaimed, what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. He recounted the life of Dr. Roland Taylor, a compassionate, an incredibly compassionate, gracious, faithful pastor who was put to death for his Protestant views. And as Dr. Taylor was um, facing his death, he quotes the Psalms in English and he was struck in the face and demanded to quote in Latin. Those are the things they were being murdered for. And Fox wrote, forgive me because this is uh, extreme language, Fox wrote that Dr. Taylor was struck over the head until his brains fell out. Archbishop Archbishop Cranmer, um, who did recant his views at the request of Mary, ultimately would recant his recantation. So Mary asked him to recant his views, and he did. And then as he stood trial, he recanted his recantation, and he um, declared that the hand which he signed his recantation with his right hand was unworthy and would be the first part of his body to go into the fire. And so he, as he went to the stakes to be burned, he held his right hand out in the flame, and they said he just muttered this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand. Fox's book was titled Acts and Monuments, but history um, began to call it Fox's Book of Martyrs. And his account of martyrs of church history shifted the views of England and would flow out into Europe. And the heart of Fox's writing was this, that there were some who so believed what they said that they were willing to allow their blood to seal the message of their lips. Fox was encouraging Protestants, believers, um, to faithfully hold to their convictions no matter the consequences. 
And the evidence of Fox's work is this, that faithful testimony of saints willing to proclaim the truth even through suffering always strengthens the church and brings validity to the message. And so Tertullian in the 5th century uh, earlier writes that the blood of the martyrs, it's the seed of the church. There is something in these stories, as we read stories of men and women who faithfully died for their views, there's something in the story that causes your faith to be stirred. There is something in the testimony that causes my faith to rise up and to be excited. There is something in the story of a man or woman's life who faithfully lived their convictions and preached the gospel with boldness, even unto death. Something about that story changes me. It moves me. It shifts me. It births within me passion and desire to live all of my life for the gospel of Christ. The story does something to us. Fox knew that if he could just tell the stories, he could change the atmosphere. The power of testimony is often underestimated. And your life, too, is a story in the making. And you have to ask yourself, what does your story tell? What is the legacy that I leave? What do my grandkids really believe about my faith? And Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 1.14, as we studied a couple weeks ago, um, he says this, because of his imprisonment, he is now in prison. He is awaiting trial. And the scriptures say that Paul is expecting, he at least thinks it's a possibility that the conclusion of this trial would be his execution. So I am in prison waiting for my trial and it's possible that I could be executed. And Paul writes this, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The story of my imprisonment and faithfulness in my imprisonment and God taking care of me and it's still anointing me and using me, my story is causing them to be more bold. And as we come to the book of Philippians again, and today we'll finish chapter 1. We remember again Paul's imprisonment, most likely in Rome. We remember that he is contemplating his own death. Remember last week we read that famous passage in which he said, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Which to choose? I'm hard pressed between the two. Then he resolves to live totally consumed with passion for Jesus, passion for the gospel. To live totally aflame for the gospel and to die excited to see the face of Jesus. He will live excited, burning with passion, and he will die excited because he knows that on that day he will get to behold the face of his wonderful Savior. This morning we'll begin in verse 27. And Paul shifts from talking about his own situation, his own scenario, and he's going to begin to talk about and give instruction to the Philippian church. He's just told them that he may die, but longs to live either way, whether he lives or dies. He now tells them what they should be concerned with and largely what they should be concerned with. In response to Paul's willingness to die for the gospel, 
What they should be concerned with is their own testimony, their own faithfulness, their own willingness to persevere with the gospel message. Paul's going to tell them, in the face of my perseverance through suffering, I'm now asking you to persevere through future suffering. In the face of my faithful witness, this is almost to follow me as I follow Christ, I'm now commanding you, instructing you to be faithful witnesses. And so this morning we will study, what does it mean to be a faithful witness and what does it mean for your life's message or life's preaching to be consistent you know you and I know that even in oh how do I say this well the the Greek word um, for witness is where you get the word martyr from it's originally the same Word and, 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 and sometimes that word is used to describe a witness in the court of law. And you and I know that if I was called as a witness to testify in a, in a case today, um, my testimony needs to be found consistent. And lawyers, what they're going to do is to pick at my testimony to be sure that my testimony is logical, is consistent, that I really believe what I'm saying. And if they can find a hole in the consistency of my testimony, then my testimony is thrown out. And your friends and family do the same thing to you. You say, all of my life is for Jesus, and they watch you. And they pick apart your witness and your testimony and they say, no, it's all lip service. And my co-workers and your co-workers, they also watch you and me. And whether or not we really live and really believe the message which we proclaim. And Paul is showing the Philippians, and I want to show you this morning through a really simple sermon, that there is anointing and power and grace on men and women who preach the gospel with their lips and live faithful to the gospel with their lives. God anoints integrity consistency in witnesses. The last thing we need is more men and women and preachers who proclaim the gospel with their mouths and deny the gospel in their hearts because it doesn't take two functioning brain cells to realize that you don't really believe what you say. Some of y'all, that's all you got is two functioning brain cells. Just kidding Okay, so let's read our passage. We're going to start in Philippians 1, 27. We're going to read through verse 30, and we're going to consider this idea of being a witness and consider the encouragement of Paul to the Philippian church in the face of his own persecution. Starting in verse 27, the text says, Only. He's just told us that to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am facing possible execution only. And that Greek word for only is used a few times in the scripture. Think of Galatians 2.10, where Paul tells us that he has brought his message before the apostles. Paul says, I brought my gospel before James, before Cephas, which is just the Greek word for Peter, and before John. And I laid my gospel before them. And they said to me, we'll go to the Jews, you go to the Gentiles only. Don't forget the poor. So James, John, and Peter, James being the half-brother of Jesus, not the Apostle James, who was martyred. But James, John, and Peter say to Paul, we approve of all of your message. Your gospel is clear. We are commissioning you to preach to the Gentiles only. Don't forget the poor. 
So here Paul has just laid out his scenario. I am uh, contemplating life and death. I have struggled. I have been hungry. Life is not pleasant, but life is fruitful. Don't be concerned with me only. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and hear now that I still have. We are talking about the Philippian church's willingness to engage and suffer and live faithfully towards the gospel. Their willingness and ability to be faithful witnesses to the gospel message. Now, there are three distinct traits, virtues, or characteristics of the gospel carrier. Three traits of a faithful witness that Paul has displayed and is now asking the Philippians to display in this short passage. I just want to, for a moment, draw those three characteristics and ponder Just for a quick moment, what is the result of faithful witness? First, Paul asked them to live worthy of the gospel. Some translations, the the mild paraphrase, the NLT for instance, uses the phrase, um, live as true citizens of heaven. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. If your manner of life is not worthy of the gospel, it brings a sense of disingenuousness to your message. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that is an incredible, convicting, credibly convicting question to throw at yourself this morning. For me to throw at myself this morning. Is my life worthy of the gospel? Do I live in a manner which is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is my manner of life worthy of the gospel? Does the way that I live represent the gospel well? Do I pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and then live as hell on earth? Am I praying and preaching heaven come and living for hell to come? Am I so inconsistent with my own values or is my life appropriate for one who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus? Does the way that I live represent the gospel well? Does my life represent the kingdom well? If the gospel I proclaim has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, has liberated me from the grips of sin, has washed me by the precious blood of Jesus of all of my guilt and shame and brought me as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. When people encounter me, do they encounter the culture of heaven? Do I represent what the gospel has done well or don't I represent what the gospel has done well? 
Haley and I were driving home last night in the rain. And I was going to turn on a street and there was a person behind me laying on the horn. And I immediately said to Haley, that person ain't from the south. Because we don't honk in the south. Your actions represent the culture in which you're from. We were in a hurry the other day to a meeting and we left late and it was 100% Haley's fault. Um, (laughs) Just kidding, I took a nap. She was trying to wake me up. And there was a person in front of us who was driving so slow and wouldn't turn. And I wasn't honking my horn. I was hitting it and going beep, beep with my mouth. Because we don't honk in the South. It's rude. Does the way that you live, does your speech, does the way that you interact with your family, does it cause people to go like, who are you? Where are you from? I've never been around people like that before. Even as a church, we want this atmosphere to be encouraging and uplifting. We want to really love the presence of God. We want people to walk in and go, what is this culture? What is this environment? This is not what I'm used to. What culture do you represent? We talk all the time about this truth, and I intend that you really understand it and live it. Um, but this text is commanding of us that we live holy lives. That is the New Testament command, by the way, that we pursue holiness without which no man sees God. This, is, this text is talking about our personal holiness, but personal holiness is not just about what you do and don't do. It's not just about avoiding external sin. Personal holiness begins and ends with intimacy with Jesus. They say to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, you'll fulfill all the commandments. Holiness to Jesus begins with really loving and knowing God. Living in a way that is worthy, living life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel is not just avoiding sexual sin, although it is that. It's not just avoiding drunkenness, although it is that. It's not just avoiding um, slander and profanity, although it is that. It is pursuing real intimacy and knowledge of Christ Jesus. It is knowing the sweet voice of the Holy Spirit. It is stepping out into public with a fresh word directly from the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, and delivering a message that is anointed by His presence, because you really know Him, man. Holiness from a biblical context begins and ends with loving and knowing God and living in such a way that loves and knows God. Live a life that is in in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Then he encourages us to live in unity. Now here's some inconsistency in our testimony. We believe that we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus We believe that we will live together for all of eternity as one people who really love and know Jesus. We believe that on on one hand, but on the other hand, how many know that churches oftentimes are filled with as much gossip as anyone else? Inconsistency. We believe we'll spend all of eternity together. We might figure out how to get along and find some unity in our gospel purpose. Paul says, live unified, live in one spirit, striving side by side for the same end, the same purpose. So 
personal holiness affects your testimony and our corporate unity, our corporate holiness affects our testimony. If people touch our church and touch gossip, slander, bitterness, envy, rivalry, if they touch a people who are just striving um, to outdo one another, if they touch jealousy, then what they will touch is an inconsistent gospel. They will touch a life that proclaims one thing and lives another. Our holiness matters. Our corporate unity matters for the sake of the gospel, man. Our testimony to this community matters. And the way that we live and treat each other directly affect that. Ponder that for a moment. We keep talking about wanting to be a church that lives a Christ-centered lives, that lives selfless. And we believe that's like a very central trait of Jesus is sacrificial love, selflessness. How much are we as a church, as a people, as families, as husbands and as wives, as sons and daughters, how much are we today embodying selflessness? And the measure to which we are embodying selflessness is the measure to which we are consistent in our gospel testimony. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. What a big request. What a demanding text. Second, courage. First, Paul says to be faithful witnesses, we have to live holy, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Second, he says, you'll have to be a people of courage. And Paul tells them in verse 28, he says, be in no way alarmed by your opponents. The ESV, which I think I read to you first, says, um, that you should be in no way frightened by your opponents. Why do gospel carriers need to be people of courage? Because gospel carriers will have opponents. Paul has opponents. The Philippian church has opponents. Why do gospel carriers need to have courage, need to not be frightened? Verse 29 and 30 answer this question for us. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says that you need courage because you are, you are called to engage in the conflict of the gospel and to suffer. Now, this, as Pentecostals, we hate this. We don't like suffering. We don't know what to do with suffering in the scriptures. Um, but this um, actual phrase is fascinating because Paul says it's been granted to you for Christ's sake. It's been granted to you. And that Greek there, really, it, it's, it's really using language that's saying that this is a gift. This is a blessing to you. You are blessed with the ability to, for Christ's sake, not to suffer for nothing, but to suffer for Christ's sake. You are granted with the gift of believing in Christ and suffering for His sake. That you are able to suffer well with the gospel, and as people see you suffering well with the gospel, they will be more attracted and more likely to receive the gospel. And so... Suffering again is sticky. 
I'm, I'm not saying, um, don't hear me saying we should all pursue suffering or love suffering. But the scriptures do say that we are called to suffer at times. And the way that you suffer will either, will either validate your gospel convictions or not. I can suffer in such a way that says that I really believe and trust Jesus. In the face of my financial difficulties, I trust Jesus. In the face of my persecution, I trust Jesus. In the face of others slandering me, I trust Jesus. In the face of physical pain and trial and torment, I still trust Jesus. And there I am suffering for the sake of Christ because as I suffer, I am bringing validity to my conviction. The people that watch me see that I really believe that Jesus is worth it, man. Paul says, watch me suffer well. And as I suffer well, the gospel is flourishing because they are trying to like lawyers in a court, trying to pick apart my testimony. And all they find is that I really believe what I say I believe. And Paul says, sometimes you are called, you are gifted with the opportunity, blessed with the opportunity to walk through hardship, to walk through persecution with the gospel. Because as people watch you persecuted with the gospel, they will be more likely to believe the gospel because of you. And we keep saying this, and I want to keep saying this to you. We have made the gospel in the West all about personal comfort. And I'll say it again. You don't really want just to be comfortable. Comfortable is not what your heart aches. Fruitfulness for the gospel of Jesus, that's what your heart aches. Your heart aches for your drunk neighbor to come and know Jesus. Your heart weeps for your lost daughters and sons. Your heart really wants to be fruitful for the cross of Jesus, for the gospel of Jesus. Comfortable is not what we want. Fruitfulness is what we want. If I can have fruitfulness and comfortable, great, that's awesome. Praise Jesus. I would rather be comfortable. But I would rather be fruitful in suffering, in trial, in persecution than be barren in comfortability. And you would, too, if you think long enough about that. I have no idea what I'm talking about now. So Paul says that you need to have courage because you're called to engage in the conflict which you saw that I had. The conflict that he had, Acts tells us, starting in chapter 16, that when Paul went to Philippi, he preached the gospel, he rebuked a demon and a demon-possessed girl, and she foretold the future and gained her slave owner's money. And as she lost the demon, she also lost her gift. And so they brought Paul before the city council and said, this man is preaching a message that's not right for us to believe as Roman citizens. And Paul receives lashes. He is whipped, and then he is put in jail. The conflict which I had. Lashes in prison. The conflict that I have. Currently, Paul is in prison waiting for a trial which may end in his execution. He has had lashes and prison and he now has possible execution. And then he says, this is what you're called to. This is what you are granted, blessed with being able to partake of. This is a gift to your Christian life. That you are given opportunities in life to stand, even in the face of persecution, trial, 
physical pain to stand and to look lost souls in the eye and say, no, what I've said with my mouth, I will now seal with my blood. What I've said all of my life to my grandkids that I really believe and trust Jesus now in my suffering, now in my trials, I'll show you how much I really believe and love him. Those are opportunities and sometimes those are blessings. You'll have to have courage because you're called to engage. They're called to engage in conflict. Again, Paul says they have opponents. They must possess courage, boldness in order to witness faithfully, not frightened in anything. Verse 28. Paul is always respectful, but always bold, always courageous. And Fox recorded martyr after martyr who stood boldly. They refused, refused, that's a good English word for you. They refused to crumble under the weight of terror, under the weight of agony, under the weight of anxiety. They would not allow threats to cause them to abandon their message. Consistent man. Their first love, first priority would not allow them to walk away from the gospel even as the fire rose. My favorite, one of my favorite statements from church history for years now has been from Polycarp, an early church father who was, he was in his late eighties as they went to um, execute him for his faith. And this is what he said to his persecutors. 86 years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? Suffering well, testifying boldly, even in the face of conflict, is not just about bringing validity to the fact that I really believe what I say I believe. It is also about testifying to the faithfulness of Jesus. Polycarp says, in the face of my persecution, I couldn't possibly dishonor him. He's been so good to me for 86 stinking years. And every martyr, every, and this isn't just about martyrdom, it's about the way that you live. Every person, even in the West, who suffers well, who stands against opposition for the gospel, and they continue to walk, even as stones are flung their way, they are proclaiming on one hand, I really believe what I say I believe, and on the other hand, they are proclaiming Jesus is better. He's been too good, too faithful. Polycarp, 86 years now, he's been faithful to me. And so what about us? What about our cultural context? We're blessed to live in a society with religious freedom and freedom of speech. Young people, you need to do everything you can in the future to vote in such a way that ensures that. But we are the anomaly. We are not the the normal pattern. Christians for all of history have suffered, been persecuted, been shamed for their beliefs. We are the anomaly. This is not normal in all of history. And whether you would like to embrace this or not, we have not, um, we have not progressed beyond violence. You know, that's really what, I'm about to get nerd talk for a second. That's, that's really what, um, Many believed in, in what was taught in the Enlightenment is that as people are educated, we would abandon violence. And then you got the 20th century, which was bloody as all get out in the height of the Enlightenment. Think, don't, don't think for a moment that we have progressed beyond persecution. 
That somehow we have now discovered the scientific method and people no longer harbor hatred in their hearts. Now, I'm optimistic. Caleb is optimistic. I'm, I, I don't, some believe persecution is coming for us quickly in the West. I, it's not in my gut. I'm optimistic. I think there are many who are fighting for our, our religious freedoms and fighting for our freedom of speech. But I am also aware that there are many who would be glad if today you weren't allowed to stand up and preach the gospel. There are many who would be glad to see you put in handcuffs for expressing biblical views on sexual ethics. There are many who would be glad to see us lose our right to preach this gospel faithfully and what if that day comes will you or will you not have courage do you possess boldness so many times we say we're willing to die for the gospel why not start with living for it Quickly for a moment, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile. I am unashamed of the gospel. And, And we need to ask ourselves this question, are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we embarrassed of the message? Hell feels like such an outdated concept. Old fashioned. It's intolerant. The question is not whether or not hell is old-fashioned. The question is whether or not the gospel is true. Is hell a reality to come? I'll tell you what's old-fashioned. Arithmetic. People have been adding two plus two for thousands of years now. And the answer is still four. It's still true. The question is not, is hell old-fashioned? Caleb shouldn't be talking about hell because hell is intolerant. The question for the believer uh, is, is the gospel true? And is hell a reality? And is it true that men and women only come into right relationship by faith alone in the shed blood of Jesus? Is it true that we only experience eternal life by trusting in that sacrifice on Calvary 2,000 years ago? Don't ask me, is it tolerant or not? The question is, is it true or not? And I am willing to put all of my life on the table and that the message is still true. Arithmetic still works. The gospel is still true. Do you have boldness to keep proclaiming this message in the face of a culture who says that is intolerant? Do you have the boldness to continue to call people to repentance and to faith in Jesus in a culture who will slander you as a person of hate? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? Third, Paul says you'll have to be willing to sacrifice. Paul has been beaten. You may be beaten. I've been rejected. You may be rejected. I've been mocked, shamed, and you too will be mocked and shamed. 
so many of us are afraid to really engage in trying to bring the gospel to our culture because we really don't want to be mocked. We really don't want to be slandered. We really don't want to pick a fight. And I, and I, and I get that. I'm not one who's like looking to pick a fight about little things on Facebook. I understand that sometimes those aren't fruitful conversations, but what fruitful conversations are you having though? It's one thing to say, that's not fruitful to do that kind of online debate. And I'm with you to some extent, but what are you doing that's fruitful? And, and church fathers who were really anointed, man, the church fathers and mothers, even in the charismatic Pentecostal movement who led the way for us to taste and see the goodness and the fullness of God. Um, even, even the... <laughs> Take some time to study Pentecostals in the 1920s. See a people who were marginalized. See a people who were ostracized. What if they had to quit on that message? What if they loved the acceptance of people more than they loved the true gospel? Or, or what if they loved the affection of people more than they were willing to stand on their convictions concerning the truths that the Holy Spirit still speaks today and still moves today and still heals the sick today? What if they had quit because they didn't like the fire? Are you quitting because you don't like the fire? Or do you live with the understanding that the way in which you live is a testimony to your kids, to your grandkids, and to centuries to come? What if Martin Luther had said, ah, I wrote this 95 thesis and it's getting tons of traction, but I don't really like controversy. What if, what if Wycliffe would have said, ah, if I translate this scripture in the English, I'm sure I'll be condemned as a heretic. I won't do that. What if God really wants to move in our culture, in our city, in our community? What if God is desperate to see the gospel really preached and proclaimed again? And what if we are embarrassed of it? What if we are sitting on our hands? Are we sitting on our hands? Questions I have to ask myself every day, man. Gospel carriers are so infatuated with the gospel message that everything else fails in comparison. Jesus says that those who have found the kingdom are like this. They're like people who have found a treasure in a field. And on finding that treasure, they go and sell everything they have, all of their possessions. They leave it all behind and they take all of that money and they go and buy the field because the treasure within the field is so much better than everything else they had in the world. And gospel carriers, they don't tremble in fear of persecution. They don't tremble and run from slander. They're not so nervous about what if, what if someone doesn't like me or what if people think wrongly of me. They celebrate those moments because Jesus said that the world will hate you because they hated me. They're okay with every now and then being hated for the sake of the gospel. Because when they don't quit... They bring validity to their message. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.